Well, if there's a great thing about temptation, it's, and it's, a, it's hard to find one for sure, it's that it brings us all together, right? Because all of us are tempted at some point by something or somebody. And let's really be honest at the start of, at the start of this message. It's not someday. It's kind of like an everyday or every week thing because temptation is such a normal, ongoing part of life. And one of the biggest ways it brings us all together is the reality that temptation and giving into temptation leaves us all with a bunch of the same questions. Like, why do we do things that hurt us? Why would we do things that hurt the people that we love? Why would someone do something that makes absolutely no rational sense? And as we said the very first week, temptation is a part of life where our ignorance, refusing to know and understand where temptation comes from and what is really at the heart of temptation, fuels our behavior or our failure to resist temptation. And for that reason, week by week, we have been learning and studying temptations that we can grow our resistance to grow our resistance. We said that every time that you're tempted, there's three things on the line. There's your future, your family, and your faith. That every time we're tempted, those three things are on the line. Last week then, we learned that when you're tempted, your trust in God is tested, not just your self-control. That it's a little bit your self-control, but it's always your faith in God being tested. That we're all faced with the choice to allow God to close the gaps that we experience in life or to close the gaps ourselves. And what we choose reveals where our trust really lies. And what we've said is that if we can pause and connect the dots of our temptation, what's really happening beneath the surface of what's obviously happening, temptation loses a lot of its power and intimidation factor in our lives. So today, as we move forward, we're going to talk about the second core temptation that Jesus faced, the second core temptation that Jesus faced that we also face. And this one is going to hit some of us right in the face. It's going to kick some of us right in the gut because this is the temptation to use God as a means to our own ends. This is the temptation to use God as a means to our own ends. Another way, way to say this would be to say it's the temptation to presume and to assume on God's goodness, his love, and his grace. This is to assume and presume that I can live any old way and God, and God will do stuff to make it all work out. He's the way maker after all. He's in the business of making a way where there is no way. And he's in the, in the business of making a way through, to deal with and to get rid of all of the you know, ridiculous decisions that I make. I'm pretty sure he likes doing that. So, like, but so, so, so that's what this is all about. It's the temptation to go with what feels right and to presume that God will be cool with whatever we choose for the religiously inclined. This is the temptation to find a verse that lets you do whatever it is that you've already decided that you're going to do, but you know that you probably shouldn't do, or to find a verse that lets you do something that you know is actually really unwise. It's, it's the temptation to attach spiritual language to things that God would want you to have nothing to do with. For, the, for, for those of us who are politically inclined, this is the temptation to choose politics that we like independently of Jesus and then attach Jesus to our politics after the fact, which is something that every side of, of politics has been guilty of since the time Jesus walked the earth. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Everyone wants to claim Jesus and attach him to their side of the equation. So assuming that you have ever found yourself tempted in this way, because let's be honest, all of us have faced some version of this, some variation of this. There is good news in this. Jesus faced this same temptation. And Jesus showed us how to overcome it because Jesus, again, didn't just come to, to pay for the, the price for our sin. Jesus came to show us how to break the power of our sin. And it's actually a pretty simple solution. You just have to actually want to do it. So here's the bottom line if you want it early. When you're tempted to use God as a means to your own ends, don't. Yeah. When you're tempted to use God as a means to your own ends, don't. 
Let me pray for you. That's the end of the message. No, I'm just kidding. We're not actually going to stop there, but we could because that actually is the, the real idea here. When you're tempted to use God as a means to your end, stop. Just don't do it, okay? Here's, here, here, here's where we go. To look to Jesus' example from Matthew chapter 4 and how he showed us to overcome this temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Then, so after the first temptation, then the devil took him to the holy city Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, again, there's that, there's that little you know, needle poke at, at Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, you got to prove it. If you're the son of God, jump off. Kind of like, what? Jump off a building? For the scriptures say, oh, the devil brought some scripture this time. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. The devil recognized that the first time Jesus responded to temptation, he responded with scripture. So, so the devil himself brings scripture next time. Twist scripture. See, what the devil knew and what Jesus knew is that the hardest people for Jesus to convince were the religious leaders. That ironically, the very people who should have been the first to recognize Jesus didn't and wouldn't and would never. That no matter how many miracles Jesus did, these guys would not recognize him as the rightful Messiah. And so the devil says, hey, you do this thing from that verse, it's an unmistakable sign and they'll be forced to recognize you. You'll be forced to recognize you. You can skip all the food multiplying, skip all the touching and the healing of all those yucky sick people, skip all the walking on water and calming of storms. I mean, who wants to be on the water? I mean, like Jesus, like you're like literally on the water during a storm. Who wants to do that anyway? Skip all the interactions with the Gentiles and the Romans. They were my people at this point anyway. Skip all that stuff and get to the good part where everyone recognizes you for who you are. In other words, I have a verse. I have a verse that gets you exactly where you want to go. Sure, it's out of context. Sure, it doesn't have all that much to do with our current situation. Sure, it seems like a cheap party trick, but it gets you where you want to go. It gets all the eyes on you, gets all the attention that you deserve. This gets you to your purpose faster and without any pain. So use this verse. Get it going already, Jesus. Come on. Get it going. This is the textbook example of presume and assume on God. Jesus, we presume you're supposed to get everyone's attention. We presume that you're supposed to have everyone's eyes on you. So let's assume that that's the truth and let's just get this thing going. Let's just make it happen already. Let's come on. Let's go, 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 go. Let's skip to, to how God wants it all to happen. Let's skip all that pain. Skip all the stuff that you're supposed to do to show the world who God is and all. Let's skip all that. Like just get to the point where everyone realize that you are who you say you are. Like, let's just get to the part where everybody realizes that you're the Messiah, that you're the Son of God, that God protects you. Like, just get to that part. Make it unmistakable. Twist scripture to make it happen. This is the textbook thing, to twist things so that someone would use God as a means to accomplish something God never intended. In everyday life, in everyday life, this is the temptation to launch a bunch of ideas at God and then say, God, you're going to come through on that, right? This is, the temp this is the temptation to do a bunch of stuff we know has nothing to do with God and then go, hey God, you're a God of grace and mercy, so you got to help us out and make things happen and, make it and, and help us with this stuff that you would never have anything to do with. And for where God goes, oh man, you found that verse about grace and mercy. Oh man, you kind of, you twisted my arm and so now I have to show up with grace and mercy. This is like a bunch of kids, uh, teenage boys sitting in a car with a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have with a plan they shouldn't carry out. And the one kid in the back says like, guys, even if we get caught, my dad's a lawyer. <laughs> Some of you know, knew that kid. Some of you were that kid. Like the kid presumes on the authority and the reputation and the ability of the father, but in doing so, reduces the father's greatness, manipulates the father's greatness because it becomes subservient to the dumbness 
of the Son. This is the young lady who goes, well, yeah, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. We don't connect around faith, but God can't, but God can make him a Christian. God can't make that Christian dude cute. Like, 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 so, you know, like, I feel like this is what God may want for me. This is what I want for me. And I think I'm going to twist God's arm to make it happen. The kid who doesn't study and goes, well, God, it'd be a bad testimony if I fail this test. So God, so God, help me recall to memory all the stuff that I never learned in the first place. Some of you have prayed that prayer. You've prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer one time. I didn't. I, I only had to pray it one time for me to feel so bad about having to pray that I would never pray it again. God, you know, God help recall to memory all this stuff that I should have learned in the first place, but I didn't. Like, so just help me guess really good on the test because it'll be a bad witness if I failed. If I fail, I'm a Christian. Everyone knows I'm a Christian. If I fail, it's going to be a bad, bad look on God. The couple who's irresponsible with money. God, you need to come through because if people find out that you didn't come through, people are going to know that you didn't come through and they'll think that you weren't faithful to us. It's a church, she says, well, we're, or, or a couple stepping out in ministry towards, towards, towards something going, you know, we're going to step out in faith, which a lot of times translates to the idea that we've come up with an idea so irresponsible, the only way it works is if God does a miracle to bail us out. I mean, like, God looks at these, and he's like, this is people stepping out and, and saying, like, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do. Um, oh, God, you've got to do something to make it work because we didn't really consult you about this idea and this was really our idea in the first place. But God, because we like you and because we think you, because we know you love us, like you got to help us out because this is going to be a mess if you don't get involved in our thing. And God, I think, looks at us and says, yes, I'm good. Yes, I'm gracious. Yes, I'm merciful. Yes, I provide. But before I'm any of those things, I'm God. I call the shots, not you. I call the plays, not you. You don't play me. You don't reduce me to meeting your wishes and bailing you out of your bad ideas. For some of you, can I just say this so clearly? For some of you, your resistance to temptation will grow when you remind yourself of this simple truth. God is God and I'm not. God is God and I'm not. God calls the plays, I'm the player. God, play, God calls the shots, I'm the one who's supposed to put it into action. It's God's agenda first, not my agenda first. And if we will understand that truth, it goes a long way in helping us to actually resist the temptation that so often comes for us to use God to meet our own agenda and to, and to use God as a means to our own end because God is the end. He is not a means. Go on and back to Matthew. Jesus responded to this temptation. Jesus responded, well, the scriptures also say, the scriptures also say, hey, devil, and thank you so much for bringing that scripture that you brought. But the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. And once again, Jesus takes Satan back to something that happened within the nation of Israel when they were traveling through the desert the wilderness 1,300 years earlier. Jesus says, you should not test the Lord your God. You must not test the Lord your God. You go, what does it mean to test the Lord your God? What does it mean to test the Lord your God? Jesus clarified what, because, because when he said it and when the, the devil heard it, they knew exactly where this verse came from, exactly what he's talking about. In Exodus chapter 17, we're told the history of what happened when Israel tested the Lord your God and then was instructed, you should not, you must not test the Lord your God. In Exodus 17, we're told at the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink, which raises a really great question. Why on earth would a traveling group of thousands of people set up camp somewhere that there wasn't water? Like, 
Like, why on earth would, like, like, why would anyone do, like, if you, like, you know that you're in the middle of the desert, why would you set up camp, a long-term camp, somewhere there was no water? This is a bad decision. And we don't really know the answer to that question of why they chose this place. But based off of what happens next, we get the sense that this was just a bad idea by a group of people who assumed that God would bail them out of their bad idea, regardless of how bad the idea was. Verse 2, the story goes on. It says, so once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied, which would be great. Like, just like, if that solved life's problems, if that solved this issue, quiet, quiet. Quiet, Moses replied, why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? Moses calls this testing the Lord. Settling somewhere that doesn't make any sense and then complaining about God for there not automatically being water when they knew there wasn't water where they decided to set up camp there. This is testing the Lord. This is presuming that I can live any way I want to and God has to bail me out of my bad ideas. Moses called this testing the Lord. But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Moses is going like, hey, I got you out of Egypt. You're welcome, by the way. You're welcome. No one made you camp here. Like, I didn't make you camp here. You all chose to camp here. This is getting ridiculous. God, what do I do? What do I do with these people? And the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. And so Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. And the nation was happy and satisfied. And that's not in the scripture, but the nation was happy and satisfied. And Moses and God were ticked off. Yeah, like, I mean, this is like as a parent, when you finally give in to your kids, they'll stop complaining and fussing and, 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 and they automatically become, and instantly become pe- the most peaceful, happy children in the world, enjoying the thing that they just couldn't live without, that they bugged you and bugged you and bugged you and bugged you and bugged you for. Like, this is like, so, as, so the kid is sitting over, in the, over going like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. I'm so wonderful. I'm so peaceful. And you're sitting there as the parent a few feet away, just looking at them like, like you're twitching, your eyes are twitching, your mouth is twitching, your nose is twitching. You're sitting a few feet away wondering how you raise such stubborn and immature complainers. And then you look at your spouse and you blame them because obviously that's where the, where the, where the immaturity and the complaining and the stubbornness came from. It came from that, right? Like, like this is what happens. Moses and God are not happy with their kids. So Moses came up with a way to let everyone know how unhappy he and God were with their actions. It says in verse 7, Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Because if God's here with us, he needs to meet our need, even though we shouldn't even be here. This is a stupid place for us to stop. This is a bad idea for us to stop here. But since we're here, if God's here, he needs to bail us out of our bad idea. Moses is the parent who renames the day. While the kids are thinking, yay, this is the day we got ice cream. Moses goes, no, this is the day you pushed dad to his breaking point, And I thought about putting you up for adoption. That's what today is. And for the rest of the time, this place and this day is going to be known as the day that you tested God and that you 
pushed and argued against me. This is a moment where the people came up with an idea and then fought with God and used God because they believed God needed to come through to redeem their bad idea. Now again, as I said last week, Exodus is the history, Deuteronomy is the sermon. Deuteronomy is the is the is the is the sermon of what's about to of 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 you know, people are about to head into the promised land. People were about to go receive the promised land that God had promised them before they had ever gone to Egypt in the first place. This is his reminder to the people about what they've experienced, what they've seen from God, what they know to be true of God. And in Moses' sermon to the people, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says this, You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massah. You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massah. He says, you must not test the Lord. You want to know what Jesus meant when he said, you must not test the Lord your God? That's what he meant. Don't come up with an idea and use God as a means to accomplish your idea. Don't twist God's word to serve your your agenda. Don't come up with your agenda and get mad at God when your agenda doesn't work without him. Don't make up your mind about what you're going to do and go hunting for a verse to use as permission from God. And so we jump back to Matthew where Jesus responded. The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. See, if you want want a phrase that helps to grow our resistance in the face of temptation, here's here's what we say to temptation. Temptation, I'm not doing that. I was made to cooperate with God, not manipulate God. Temptation, I'm not going with you. I'm not doing that. I was made to cooperate with God, not to manipulate God. See, can I, t- can I tell you one of the times in my life where I've realized this in, in one, of the, one of the biggest ways? Um, when I was in college, when I was a junior in college studying for ministry, um, there was a job posting for a, u- a youth ministry job at a large church in Colorado. And I was a junior. I, I mean, I was, I was about a year, year, year and a half from finishing up school. And um, I remember thinking like, hey, I'm, like, I joked to a friend of mine, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go apply an interview for that job. And my friend said, well, you, I mean, you're a junior. It's never too early to get some interview experience. And I thought, that's actually a really good point. So I signed up for, to, for an interview slot and I went to my interview and I thought it went fairly well. You know, I was like, okay, I guess I got some good interview ex- experience. I even told the interviewer, the pastor who was interviewing, I said, is there anything that I could do better in this interview? Because I'm really just here to get interview experience. So an hour later, after, after my interview, I get a call from that pastor offering me the job that I had just interviewed for. And I was like, "Woo, that's exciting. Like I was excited about the, as I heard about the church, I thought I'm excited. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this job. This is exciting. I came to school to study, to prepare for ministry. But if someone wants to give me a job and pay me to be in ministry already, like that's awesome. I can do all the rest of school by, you know, distance education, which I mean, this was in like 2005. Now we know you can do all of the education stuff through distance. Like we've all learned that lesson in a really strong way, right? In the, in the last year, I thought I can, I can do, you know, go, go slow. I can, I can work and finish up my education from, from, from Colorado. I can, I can do all that. That's you know, no problem. And I remember the pastor who offered me the job saying, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a week and pray about this job and see if you think that you're supposed to, you're supposed to accept it. And I told him, I don't, I don't, I don't think I need to pray about it. I think I'm just, I think I want to accept it now. And he said, no, you don't want you to pray about it. Okay. So I said, okay, I'll take, I'll take the week. I'll call you next week. And I, when I said that, I thought, so I'll call you in a week and accept the job. And then I thought, you know what? They want me to pray about it. I'm going to pray about it. And for the next week, I ended up so frustrated with God because I remember every time I would go to like a specific dedicated time of prayer, I would take about an hour, I set aside about an hour every day just in time to pray about this job. And 
instantly, I mean like instantly, it's very rare that I instantly hear from God. But when I would pray, I just remember feeling this in like unexplainably clear, no, no. Like, hey God, am I supposed to take this up? No, no. And no, without any further explanation, there wasn't any like, no, because, no, because, no, but I have something like, it was just no. And I remember being incredibly, incredibly frustrated with God because this was something that I wanted. And I remember as soon as I would get that no, I would spend the next hour trying to talk, like in prayer, trying to talk God into why this was a good idea that he had already said no to. And, and trying, to, trying to understand, like, God, if, you know, like, I'll under, if you can just help me understand the no, like, I can deal with the no. But if you're not going to give me anything, like, I, just, I, like I, just, I was so frustrated. And I just was no, 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 no. And I, like, I remember after, after about five days of this pattern going on, I went to prayer and I felt like, you know, God, like, I feel like you're saying no, but I want, I want to take this job. I feel like it'd be a great fit, a great opportunity. Ah, da, 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 you know, like, and, and kind of went on and on and on with God. And I, and I, I don't know if this is most people's experience. I know as I've talked to some of you, you say like, yeah, I can feel the same way. I feel like when, like God, like when I, I can understand when God is reaching a little bit of a frustration point with me and he'll get kind of sarcastic back towards me. And I feel like after day, on, on the sixth day, as I went to pray, God, God said like, look, Chris, how much longer are you going to try to talk me into an idea that I've already said no to? I was just like, okay, all right. That's frustrating. That's frustrating. How, like, so it's just no. It's just no. And God said, look, you can, you can go without my blessing. But I've said no. You know where I stand on this. I'm like, okay, okay. And so at that moment, like, I was so, I was so frustrated, but, like, I, but, but I realized that I was trying to manipulate God into, to get him to go along with my plan rather than me going along with his plan, but I knew I, I was made to cooperate with God. I was, I, I'm answering God's call to my call on my life. Why would I try to manipulate him into my plan for my life? And so I remember in that moment, I finally surrendered. I said, okay, God, like, okay, your, your way. And I called the next day and I turned down the job. And because of things that happened at that church and in my schooling and in my personal life in the next year until I graduated, I was so glad that I did. The things that happened at that church in the next year, things that happened in my life in the next year, I was so glad that I turned down the job and finished school and stayed where I had relationships and I had people established that I knew and loved and cared for me and would speak wisdom in my life. Like I was so glad that I did. And when I hit graduation a year later, I thought back on the last year and all the things that I was grateful for. And I, and I felt that gentle, gentle nudge from God in a prayer time where I was just thanking God for what had happened over, over the last year. And I felt that gentle nudge as if he said to me, all that stuff that you're grateful for, that's why I said no a year ago. You're welcome. And I just remember in that moment, understanding far, far more than I'd ever understood in my entire life. I was made to cooperate with God, not to manipulate with God. I was made to be a person who had surrendered my plans to God's plans, who said your will, not my will. See, what, what I know and what you know and what maybe you've seen from, from some, pe some people's life is that the people who are most disappointed with God are people who have never surrendered to God. They're often very religious, but their religion is intended to get something from God. And when they don't get what they want from God, they get very frustrated with God. And sometimes they turn their back on God, but never too much because they might need something from God in the future. And so here's something that's true and something that I think we just have to understand 
about when we, when we try to manipulate God. People who work to manipulate God rarely hear from God and rarely feel a close connection with God. See, they don't really want to know God's will. They want God to approve of their will. So they don't actually want to hear from God. They don't actually want much of a relationship because if they heard from God and if they had a relationship, they would know what God actually expected from them, not what they want God to do for them. They don't actually want clarity if it messes up the confusion that they like. People who manipulate God rarely hear from God and rarely feel a real connection with God. We see people who hit rock bottom, people who hit rock bottom, they stop trying to manipulate God and instead they surrender to him. There was a, a famous telev- televangelist uh, couple named Jim and Tammy Faye Baker um, years and years and years ago. This is when I, when I was a child, but I remember they were so famous. I remember hearing about their rise, hearing about how famous they were, and I remember hearing about their fall. Matter of fact, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker went to my Bible college which is not like the ringing door, a ringing endorsement for me, I guess. It was, it was a place they had actually donated so much money. I went to school in, in Minneapolis. They had donated so much money that they actually named, we, our school had skyways so that in the winter you didn't have to walk outside to connect from building to building. They had donated so much money to the school that they named one of the skyways the Jim and Tammy Baker uh, Skyway. When they fell from grace, there was, this, there was this big plaque that was in the skyway dedicated to them. When they, when they had their scandalous fall from grace, that plaque was taken down. The name was taken off. It was just the Skyway. That's, like, that's who these people were. They, they rose to, to Christian fame. They, were, they had a media empire that rivaled any media empire as in, in the Christian world. Like it, it, was, it was really unbelievable. They had a show called Praise the Lord. Tammy Faye wore tons of makeup and would cry every episode. And it would be, like, I mean, they were, they were famous, famous, famous Christians, famous televangelists. They were also famous because they had a scandalous fall from grace because they were misusing the money that was coming into their ministry in horrible, horrible, horrible ways. Jim Baker actually went to jail, actually went to prison because of what he had done. And after he came out of jail, I'm not sure if he actually wrote it while he was in prison or if he wrote it immediately following when he came out of prison. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong, which most people already knew. Uh, most people knew he was wrong. He wrote a book called I Was Wrong. And in this book, he wrote something that I thought was so fascinating. He said, when I went to prison, I started reading the Bible and it was a completely different book. I realized that all my life I had gone to the scriptures to find promises that God had made so I could hold God to his promise to support my endeavors. I'm going to read that one more time. When I went to prison, I started reading the Bible and it was a completely different book to me. I realized all my life I had gone to the scriptures to find promises that God had made so I could hold God to his promise to support my endeavors. In other words, in prison, it was a completely different book because he was a completely different person. The manipulation stopped and a brand new relationship began. So here's the question for you, and here's the question for me. Are you a cooperator or a manipulator? If, if, you're, if you're one, because none of us want to see this in the mirror. None of us realize this about ourselves until someone actually helps us to understand how to realize this. Here's how you find out. Number one is you listen to your prayers. 
you listen to your prayers. Are you asking God to do a bunch of stuff or saying, hey, you know what, God, I'm here for you. Whatever you want me to do, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be a part of you and your will and your plans. Or are you constantly just going, God, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what, this is what I need you to do. This is what I like. Like I got myself in the situation. I need you to bail me out. Listen to your prayers. Your, your prayers will tell you a lot about whether or not you're a cooperator or a manipulator. Number two is you monitor your response when circumstances don't work out the way that you want. In other words, when things don't work out the way that you want, do you go to God for answers or do you go to God with blame? You say, God, you could have you could have stopped this. You could like you should have stopped. Like you're supposed to love me. You're supposed to do all this stuff for me. Like we, how we go to God and talk to God when circumstances don't work out our way shows us a lot about our expectations of God, whether we're there to cooperate with Him or whether He's ultimately supposed to cooperate with us. And number three, pay attention to your response to sin. Pay attention to your response to sin. See, a manipulator will go, well, no, no one's perfect. It'll be okay. I give a lot of money, so we can just go to the pastor, go to the priest. I'll work the system. In other words, they think there's a system to manipulate. And what God wants for us is not a system that we can manipulate, but a relationship where we cooperate. That's what God designed you and me for. And if you can pause and notice it, you go, oh my goodness, I'm about to try to manipulate God into doing what I want God to do so my thing works out. You can stop yourself from doing it and you can change course. One, one last thing here. Imagine in this moment, if Jesus failed to resist temptation, I mean, if, like if Jesus would have jumped off the temple, like it, it really wouldn't, I mean, like most of us wouldn't think that was sin if the devil wasn't involved. We'd think like, well, it's just a dumb thing to do, but I don't know if it's really sin. If Jesus had failed to resist this, this temptation, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think would have sounded a lot different. If he had chosen in this moment, you know what? He, I actually think you're right. I can get what I, I can get the attention on me faster. I can avoid the pain. I can avoid a couple years of hard work. I can avoid all this other stuff that I don't really, like, you know, that, you know, I, I know it's like my purpose, but I don't really, I don't know if I really, really, really want to do all that. I think Jesus' prayer the night that he was betrayed, the night before he would head to a cross, I think his prayer that night would have sounded a lot different in the Garden of Gethsemane. If Jesus didn't square this way then and there, his prayer later on the night before the cross would have sounded much different. I think it would have sounded like this. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I'm telling you, I am not going to a cross. You have to think of another way. Seriously, I'm not doing the pain for gain thing. I'm not, like I'm just not gonna do it. We can stay here all night, fine by me. Every moment we're in the garden is a moment I'm not being whipped and nailed to the cross. My way, not your way. Let's figure out another way. Let's figure out another, my way, not your way. Instead, instead, Jesus set a standard of surrender and a standard of cooperation with his father. Here's what his prayer actually did sound like. My father, if it is possible May this cup taken, be taken from me. Words, I, I, I don't want to do, like, this is not something that I'm looking forward to. May this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, your will be done. See, there's always more on the line when you're tempted. There's always more at stake when you're tempted. What seemed like a ridiculous request to jump from a building was more than that, was more than that. It would set the tone for the rest of Jesus's life. And it would set the tone for surrender to God's plan for your salvation and my, and my salvation. That Jesus was surrendered to his heavenly father and his plan. That Jesus was there to cooperate with God, not to ever try to manipulate God. Not as I will, but as you will. And because of that, we can know forgiveness from God and we can have peace 
with God. So temptation, temptation. I'm not doing that. I'm here to cooperate with, not with God, not to manipulate God. I trust that God is my source. I'm here to cooperate with God, not to try to manipulate God. I'm surrendered to Him and His plan, not my will, but His will be done. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that God, for the moments where we do get to try, where we do try to manipulate you, God, that you do so often show yourself to be a God of love and grace and mercy. And you do meet us in the places where we have led ourselves into terrible places and in bad with bad decisions and in bad directions. Thank you that you are a God of love and grace. And God, that when we do stupid things, you do meet us there and you do reach out to us and that you do meet us with grace and mercy. But God, I also thank you for the example of Jesus right here. God, that set an example of choosing something better of choosing to cooperate, of choosing surrender, of choosing a better way, of choosing your way. So God, thank you for the example. Help us to personalize this. Help us to take this in, in and to actually live it out. Help us to be people that when we're tempted to manipulate you, and God, this isn't something that we ever really square away, but God, help us to when we face the temptation to use you as a means to our ends that we would never do it, that we would actually just stop ourselves in our tracks and realize, oh, I'm doing it again. I need to turn around. I need to change course. I, can, I, I'm, I want to choose never to manipulate God, but I want to choose to cooperate with him and his plans and his ways. So God, help us to do that. Help us to do that on Monday. Help us to do it on Thursday. Help us to do it on Saturday. Help us to do it on Tuesday. Help us to do it every day for the rest of our lives, to cooperate with you and to never try to manipulate you, to surrender to you, to follow Jesus' example of surrender and submission to your plan and your ways. We love you, God. We pray that you give us courage to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen.